Ah, yes, the 1970s. Right after the sexual liberation of the 1960s, and right before AIDS put an end to free love. Right after the political awakening of the 1960s, and right before the oppressive conservatism of the Reagan-Thatcher-dominated 1980s, you'll find a sweet spot in the middle where decadence and pleasure were worthy of pursuit and not things to feel guilty about. Yours truly curmudgeons were born smack in the middle of this decade, putting us at the tail end of Generation X. Much has been written and said about the great, groundbreaking, innovative albums of this period and the overflow of genres that still define much of today's music. But it was such a fertile period that there are countless albums that have been more or less forgotten as time has passed. Don't fret, folks. The curmudgeons are here to correct that oversight. On this episode, we present to you the 20 most definitively underrated albums of the 1970s. Welcome to the 29th edition of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. Welcome, everyone, to the 29th, yes, 29th edition of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. This is Christopher O'Connor coming to you from suburban Houston. And with me, as always, is Arturo Andrade coming to you from Gwangju, South Korea. And we host the podcast made just for you. We don't do hot takes. We do honest takes. So then this belongs to you. Well, who are you? You are the rock geek iconoclastic outsider looking for safe haven in a world where rock no longer predominates. Well, it sure as heck does here on the Curmudgeon Rock Report, where we not only celebrate this music, we live it in its full majesty and in its full color and at full force. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some stuff you never knew before, probably more from Arturo than from me. And now you can join our new invite-only Facebook group, which we call the Curmudgeon Rock Report's Curmudgeonly Community. Join us and share thoughts, musings, and random excitement with fellow travelers along the curmudgeonly path to rock and roll goodness. So, uh, Arturo, I, I seem to recall at the end of the last episode that we promised folks the top 10 most underrated uh, albums of the 1970s, but now we're at 20. What happened? What happened is that I came to the realization, and I think you as well did, that uh, Dude, the 1970s was such a great decade for music. There are so many great albums and unsung and unheralded albums, just as much as the classic heralded and sung albums that we, yeah. just, we, just, we, we had to increase it to 20. We just had to. Yeah, which makes sense because I challenge our, our uh, listeners out there, uh, the, the Mikes and the Dennis's of the world uh, and the Lees of the world, actually. Uh, you try... Uh, limiting uh, a list like this to 10 uh, records exactly uh, really really hard and it will actually as a intellectual exercise will be quite agonizing well with that said folks uh before we go to the 1970s we need to go to the other side of the space-time continuum here we are in the parallel universe uh, where we like to say green is blue up is down and uh, the musicians and rock stars that deserve the uh, stadium love and the 
uh, the praise of the mass uh, intelligentsia and of all the real people and the little people out there actually do get that love. And so here we are again. Uh, this is a segment in which uh, each of us reviews a newly uh, released album from a contemporary artist that uh, each of us is vibing uh, in this uh, here two-week period. Uh, that said, Arturo, what are you bringing uh, with you over here to the Parallel Universe this week? It's fitting that we're doing an album, uh, an episode, sorry, of a uh, uh, 1970s albums because my recommendation is a hip-hop album very rooted uh, in 1970s funk and R&B. Now, this album came in at number 13 on my list of best albums of 2021 from last year, and it is my choice for the second best hip-hop album of the year after another album that I reviewed on this podcast, Genesis Ousu's Smiling With No Teeth. Uh, this album is by Topaz Jones. It's called Don't Go Tellin' Yo Mama. Uh, this album is a rarity in contemporary hip-hop, whether it's mainstream or underground, in, in the sense that it is a hip-hop music album that you can, God forbid, actually dance to. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, hip-hop to dance to. How about that? Yes, it's funky, it's groovy, it bumps, it grinds, and it flows just as well in a dance club as it would in a bedroom. Uh, firmly rooted in 1970s funk and early 1980s R&B, not too far removed from the smooth Minneapolis sound that birthed Prince and uh, brimming with jazzy undertones, it comes off like a sly hybrid of mid-90s A Tribe Called Quest and the restless magpie tendencies of Kendrick Lamar, Circa to Pimp a Butterfly. That's a good um, call, actually. Yeah. yeah. Uh, as a rapper, Jones isn't really anything unique, but he does have an engaging flow that slips in nicely with the super slick beats and his witty lyrics eschew the, that macho gangsta bullshit of a lot of mainstream hip hop artists for more socially conscious fare that's uh, really rich with autobiographical details in his narratives. Um, standout tracks, uh, the irresistibly smooth yet P-funk groovy D-I-A-L, the heavy ass bass funk of Baba 70s and the psychedelic swirl of blue. So if you are sick of moody, mellow, ethereal, droning synths, sad sack hip-hop, and want some funky soul for your hip-hop stew, Topaz Jones, don't go telling your mama, is your jam. Well, there you go. Uh, the pride of Montclair, New Jersey, uh, is, <laughs> yeah. to is Topaz Jones. It's uh, worth noting that uh, this record has an accompanying 35-minute uh, mini uh, movie. Yeah, uh, that accompanies to it, which I believe you can find on YouTube. Uh, sure. It's, uh, it, you know, he's a pretty compelling uh, guy in the sense that, like you said, yeah, he does lean on uh, the funk and uh, some of the more uh, traditional uh, sounds and, and grooves. Like you said, there's you know, clearly some JD uh, Q-tip influence in uh, in the bottom end, uh, but he also has he tends to be more thoughtful. Uh, he's got a lot of wordplay. Uh, you know, some of it is really clever. Some of it is borderline Kanye, uh, right. Inducing, but, yeah. but, at but at least he's working on it. Uh, some folks might remember, and I, 
uh, in the course of recent researching this episode, I remembered this. I didn't know it was him, but there was a um, a single that uh, hit some of the urban radio stations about six years ago called Tropicana, mm. uh, which uh, is got it's almost like it's we- almost like a West Coast like kind of laid back uh, vibe to it. Yeah, uh, but it's not quite funk and it's not quite uh, soul like kind of New Jack uh, soul. Uh, but it's in, in, in some ways it's almost trap house housey with uh, the sort of the space that goes in it, but yeah. it's a, it's a fun little summer jam. Uh, so he does have, uh, some musical chops, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed with this uh, album too. And, uh, uh it, it's actually called just for the sake of, uh, being, uh, not being overly ebonic. It is called don't go telling your mama. Uh, <laughs> yeah. not, not, not yo mama, although it's, 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 it's more, it's, it's definitely more fun to say yo mama, but, uh, for, for, for all of you, uh, English purists out there, uh, it is your mama. Right. Uh, so, uh, good choice. And now we go, uh, maybe not 180. actually in, in a lot, in some ways it's not quite 180 degrees this time. <laughs> uh, welcome back to, uh, the, never-ending travels of King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. Uh, <laughs> this is now, I, over the last, over the course of these 30, uh, almost 30 episodes of this podcast, I have become our resident King Gizzard scholar. And now I have the pleasure of introducing you to a third record by this band, again, since uh, the beginning of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. Uh they definitely are the most interesting of the new uh, awesome wave of Australian bands uh, that are uh, making a dent uh, in modern rock and roll. Now, they're not only one of the most prolific rock and roll bands in the world right now, they're certainly one of its most fearless. Uh, They have the confidence to literally try anything. Uh, They've released, what is it now, 21 records in five and a half years or something like that? I don't know if it's that many, but it's quite a bit. Uh, I can tell you right now, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Uh, This is their ninth album since 2017. Yep. I got you. And so this is, this is their third release in, uh, in the calendar year. Uh, So to, as a brief review last year, they had two albums. Uh, The first one was uh, the latest in their series of microtonal uh, prog rock albums. Uh, That one was called LW. And then they did a beguiling and appropriately themed dream pop record called uh, Butterfly 3000. Uh, I'm a bigger fan of the latter than I am of the former, which I know you, uh, which I know you disagree with. Yeah. yeah. Uh, But be it as it may. uh, Now, here in February of 2022, we are getting a really weird curveball, even for King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. Uh, Made in Timeland is the name of this record. And it finds the band channeling the Orb, Aphex Twin, and other EDM artists of yesteryear. Yes, really, we're talking about hardcore uh, EDM, uh, King Gizzard, uh, at this point. Now, according to various press reports out there, uh, this album was intended as a one-time pressing, uh, or one-time only pressing, of 2,000 vinyl copies or so to be distributed to attendees of the band's scheduled New Year's Eve show in Victoria, Australia, billed as the Timeland Festival. Well, unfortunately, the worldwide tidal wave of Omicron-related COVID-19 infections forced the band to cancel that festival. 
However, uh, just a few days prior to the recording of this year episode, Made in Timeline found its way onto the internet. Uh, not sure if that was in an official or an unofficial capacity, uh, but hey, it is out there. Uh, it is the talk of many as a Reddit board. Uh, there are uh, lots of sites that have it available. Uh, it's not officially on Spotify, but there are playlists that capture it. Uh, so uh, it's kind of cool. It's kind of the equivalent of an old like uh, unannounced fan club <laughs> release yeah. uh, that's been dropped uh, on the world. Right. So now let's describe this thing. Uh, it consists of two movements called Timeland and Smoke and Mirrors. I'm calling them movements uh, rather than songs because one, they're, you know, they're instrumental, but they also do seem to be two parts of a whole wishy-washy as that whole may ultimately be. Uh, this is a 30 minute blast of electronic soundscapes that oscillate between spooky and actually quite lovely. At times the music veers heavily into Aboriginal musical territory and influences, uh, dig- didgeridoos, or at least uh, studio console simulations, uh, simulations of the indigenous instrument are there. So are clapsticks. Uh, if the vibe here is supposed to be tribal, well, that is one credible way to do it. Uh, like other King Gizzard works, uh, Made in Timeland can be deemed more of an experiment than an actual album. Uh, there's not much cohesion, despite evidence of a motif or two. I think Stu McKenzie and his bandmates are really just having fun turning knobs and discovering what may come out of the console as they do turn those knobs. And I hope that this does serve as a precursor to a real, uh, fully realized uh, Ken Gizzard album in the months uh, ahead, that would be pretty cool. Uh, one final thought. At this point, it's fair to start asking, so when do we get the reggae album from <laughs> Ken Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard? Uh, somehow I think they might uh, might pull that off. Oh, and as, as one other uh, uh, thing to uh, offer... Uh, I saw uh, it was a Reddit chat that someone was speculating, and I don't know if this is true or not, that uh, the music here was intended to be the uh, the PA music between sets at, <laughs> at, at, at the festival, which I could totally see. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. But uh, anyway, uh, your thoughts on this one? Yeah. When are we getting the King Gizzard fish style jam band album? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, widespread <laughs> panic as channeled through uh, King Gizzard. Yeah. yeah. The more I listen to this album, um, the more I like it. Yeah, I agree with a lot of what you said. Um, but I, I think this is a way, way, way more interesting excursion into electronic music than Butterfly 3000. Um, whereas Butterfly 3000, to me, was just lightweight, middle of the road, derivative, wannabe, craftwork crap. Um, this actually seems more like an original piece by a band trying to do something original um Uh, that's a fair point i mean to to me yeah it's two 15 minute tracks both are multi-section songs sometimes six sections three sections that are the same motif yeah of course you know where do you find that you find that in classical music but you know who cares about classical music where do you find that more recently ambient Ambient techno, more specifically, especially 1990s style ambient techno. And uh, that that's why I draw the orb comparison uh, yeah. more, more than Orbital or any of the other pioneering UK uh, electronic groups or sure. artists of that, of that era. Heavy on the orb, 
um, heavy, inf- heavy. Uh, I, I would say this album is seventy to seventy-five percent really groovy ambient techno, um, and then of course you know interspersed with like really weird guitar and piano instrumental stuff. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it, it, yeah. At, at one point there is that it, uh, it for about what about twenty-five seconds it actually like turns into like guitar jam, yeah. or like you know like this like kind of weird punk riff thing uh, comes yeah. there. Uh, yeah. in the middle and then at yeah, one point it, it kind of goes like super duper uh drum and bass yeah i mean yeah. it's 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 weird but it's 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 in, engagingly weird or or weirdly engaging however you want to express it um it with repeated listens it, I, I think it, it makes more sense um do i put it up there with king gizzard's best work no i don't no. but it but it is good it is solid and uh, no. i would like to i would like to see an album of songs uh, plucked and molded, or, well, plucked then molded from this kind of sound. It'd be cool. Yeah, to hear, absolutely. To hear uh, that. I mean, my my main takeaway is I really want them to do like a pure orthodox Aboriginal record, yeah, uh, because that's the coolest stuff in the whole thing. Right. Is the whether it's a real didgeridoo or a simulated one, and and the uh, the clap sticks and all that. That stuff is really cool, and you know the Winwoods and and all that. So I would love to hear them get uh, a record out of that. I mean. I know that they've done some uh, like kind of unusual instrument stuff. And I know they've done some stuff that's like native to sort of Australian sounds uh, in the past. I mean, I've heard Stu McKenzie talk about that in interviews, but I would love to just Aboriginal music is just cool anyway. Uh, And so, but I would love to hear the King Gizzard filtered uh, version of Aboriginal. That'd be pretty wild. We leave the parallel universe and we go back to those swinging ass seventies. Uh, Arturo, set us up. Yeah, um, as of late, our fellow curmudgeonly listeners and Chris, as you know, this podcast has been on a hot streak with the notion of underratedness being the running theme. Uh, on our last episode, we defended the greatness of Metallica's unfairly underrated Saint Anger album. Uh, on the previous week, we analyzed the work and the legacy of the criminally underrated folk rock duo Richard and Linda Thompson. Well, Richard and Linda started their immaculate run of albums in the mid-1970s, so we decided, hey, let's take that theme of underratedness and extrapolate it to an entire decade. The 1970s are, in our righteous opinion, undoubtedly the second most important musical decade of the 20th century, the 1960s being the first, of course. So much new ground was broken in so many genres of music, and in some cases, new genres were invented along with subgenres within the old and true, tired and true genres of rock, country, R&B, and soul. Uh, Much has been written about the defining albums of this decade, but there are many equally deserving of praise that have unfortunately slipped through the cracks of critical history. Well, damn it, we're here to correct that error. Today, yours truly curmudgeons will present the definitive list of the 20 most unequivocally underrated albums of the 1970s in the patented countdown fashion that we used to utilize in our earlier episodes. So, everybody, break out those bell-bottom jeans, that lava lamp, and that freshly rolled spliff with a high-grade weed. If disco dancing is more your jam, break out those polyester pants, break out those extra-wide collared shirts, your Coke spoon necklace, and roll out that mirror table full of freshly cut cocaina. 
and blast back to the past as the curmudgeons will guide you through the classics of that period that should be remembered more today as the all-time greats that they are. Your resident curmudgeons recently switched our hosting platform to Podbean, and what a move it's proving to be. For the equivalent of nine bucks a month, we get quality, reliable hosting that allows us to distribute the curmudgeon rock report wide and far to all the places where you find all of the other podcasts. We also get to customize a pretty good website. Visit us at curmudgeonrock.podbean.com. And we also receive some excellent statistics that tell us when and how you listen to this here creation. Most importantly, Podbean is its own community of podcasters and opens us and you to some pretty incredible music podcasts besides this incredible one. We urge you to especially check out History in Five Songs with prolific writer Martin Popoff and Song Exploder which expertly guides listeners through the making of a great pop song. Podbean, it ain't bad. So, before we go into the 20 most underrated albums of the 1970s, let's briefly, and I mean very briefly, mention 10 albums that missed the cut. In some cases, barely missed the cut. Um, And Chris, well, let's, let's start with the first one. Okay, so we start with Black Sabbath's uh, Sabotage from 1975. This is the last uh, really good, I think, great uh, album from the Ozzy era of uh, Sabbath. After that, they went in the shedder. Uh, Really strong, kick-ass record, uh, like obviously the big-ass riffs, but also the first hints of the L.A. metal sound that Ozzy would popularize uh, six years later or so. Yeah, um, I agree. This is the last good Sabbath album, period. <laughs> you know, well, there you go. Um, and you know, we also covered this album uh, many episodes ago uh, in our in our uh, our vault segment. So you know, we kind of like already did this album to death a lot. We both love yeah. this album, but yeah, we we had to put it on the cutting room floor. Yep, and same thing with the next album, which is the Rolling Stones. It's only rock and roll. Uh, we covered this in our Charlie Watts Memorial Edition of our yep. vault uh, a while back. Uh, we both love this record, uh, "Dance, Little Sister, Dance." Uh, yeah. Will always be an anthem uh, yeah. for us. I mean, that's a great shower. That's one of the greatest shower dance songs ever made. If you just want to swing your dick in the mirror and uh, <laughs> and, and and have some fun with that, and that's their last album with Mick Taylor. Uh, that's the first album that they produced, uh, Mick and Keith as the Glimmer Twins, uh, and uh, they set the template right, and it was basically a perfect, uh, book, uh, really strong, just rhythmic uh, rock record. Uh, it was a template that they would do nowhere near as well. Right. Moving, yeah. moving forward. It, it was the album that concluded that amazingly hot streak uh, from the late 60s to the mid-70s that proved that the Stones could do American rock and roll better than any American rock and roll band ever. Yep. <laughs> you know, um, another band that we had to put on the cutting room floor. Um, this was one of Chris's selections. The Guess Who Share the Land from 1970. Yep. Uh, in which uh, this is the first band of the guy that uh, brought us Taking Care of Business. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, the Guess Who uh, has uh, its profile in classic rock realm. Uh, Western Canadian band. Uh, they're more well known for the two albums, the, and this is going to be a theme throughout this episode: the album before Share the Land and the album after, uh, which are Wheatfield Soul and American yeah. Woman. 
Yeah. Uh, this does have a couple of staples on it, including the uh, title song. They did a really neat feat on this record, which they combined uh, the British invasion of the Kinks and the Beatles with the uh, the the Topanga Canyon uh, uh, stuff, folky stuff uh, of right. that era, and just really strong songwriting. Burton Cummings, awesome singer, uh, collectively great songwriters. Just a very uh, earthy. Uh, uh, Earthy album and, and share the land is one of the better f- uh, phony Dylan songs of, yeah. of the era. <laughs> I mean, they were sure. the, arg- arguably the first great Canadian rock and roll band. You know, well, yeah, no, no, the, no, the band were the band before them. Yeah, the that, guess that, who. that that's true. It's like four Canadians and a dude from Arkansas. <laughs> so uh, that that said, Arturo, tell us about Curtis Mayfield's Roots. Yeah, Roots is the album that came out in 1971. Um, when people think about Curtis Mayfield, they go, uh, especially the the most recent Rolling Stone magazine 500 greatest rock and roll albums of all time. Uh, greatest albums, not just rock and roll, greatest albums of all time. Curtis Mayfield had two albums in there justifiably so. Um, his first album, uh, Curtis, from 1970s, that's the one that has If There's a Hell Below, We're All Going to Go. Um, it's, also one, it's also the one that has Makings of You and Move On Up and Miss Black America. And of course, 1972, the Superfly soundtrack, which if you don't know, you should be ashamed of yourself for not knowing. <laughs> yeah, uh, It's got you know, Pusher Man, Freddy's Dead, the title track, Superfly. But yeah, one that gr- gets, yeah, yeah, go ahead. The greatest, the greatest soundtrack of, uh, ever made. Maybe, quite possibly, yeah. Um, but the one that gets lost is the middle the middle record there called Roots from 1971, um, which is a fantastic, perfect record on its own right. It just takes what he did on the first album, Curtis, and he just refines it. Get down, keep on keeping on. We Got to Have Peace is just one of the best anti-war anthems ever uh, and pro-civil rights uh, songs ever. It's both in, in one song which tells you to the towering brilliance of this guy and what he was. Um, so yeah, but we had to put it on the cutting room floor because there are other albums that we thought were more underrated than this one. <laughs> gotcha. So next, uh, hearts dream boat, uh, dream boat, Annie, uh, from 1976. Yes, really. So, uh, <laughs> in the 1980s, uh, sisters, Ann and Nancy Wilson sold out and, uh, spiked MTV with a series of insipid pop songs. Uh, which is too bad because, yes, these are the women that brought you Crazy on You and Magic Man, yeah. which are the two uh, forever classic rock radio staples that uh, highlight Dreamboat Annie. Uh, they also did Little Queen, I think a little after this, that has Barracuda on it. But this record yeah. uh, is a kick-ass uh, rock and roll band from female-fronted uh, uh, band, which was pretty rare in the mid-'70s. Um, yeah. And so uh, they deserve their props. Yeah, but we had to put it on the cutting room floor because I do. I don't love this album, but I do love the radio staple singles. Um, mm-hmm. Another album that I love that I had to put that we had to put on the cutting room floor was a uh, Neu, and the way it's a German name, the way you spell it is N E U exclamation point. Neu were one of those many great 1970s bands from the uh, unfortunately titled <laughs> Krautrock movement. Uh, they were basically a German progressive uh, rock electronic hybrid band that were very influential, really, really inspiring to a lot of bands. And like, like their influence didn't really, really come through until like 20 years later. Yeah. Uh, um, but, and, but they were one of the great ones. And uh, this was their 1975 album, Noi 75. 
Um, Noi were a huge influence on artists in the late seventies, particularly people like you know the stuff uh, Brian Eno and David Bowie were doing. The Berlin, yeah, trilogy. I was I was going to name drop that too. That yeah, uh, yeah, that uh, Low uh, especially owes uh, a debt of gratitude to Noi. Yeah, yeah, I mean, arguably Noi and Kraftwerk were the two most important German bands of the nineteen seventies, and Noi seventy five, in my opinion, uh, is their best album. But on the cutting room floor. Next, Chris, the next one. Yeah, uh, Neil Young's Comes a Time. Uh, underrated in the sense that uh, one, once in a while, uh, start, you know, I mean, he started this with Harvest. Uh, Neil, you know, yeah, sure, he went in the ditch after Harvest, but once in a while he realized he actually needed to make some money. And yeah. so he would make these really clean, really great uh, country ish rock records with these really sharp, uh, very well written uh, pop tunes. Uh, and countryish, uh, and so here he, we find him uh, harmonizing with Nicolette Larson. There's a couple of really uh, nice middle ground uh, Crazy Horse tracks. A uh, lot of love. His version, a lot of love, is on this record. Uh, it's it basically it bridges the it it comes right before Russ Never Sleeps, and uh, he did this not quite as effectively, but made a lot more money with Harvest Moon 14 years later. But right. Uh, so this is kind of the one, the the second of three of those records again that uh, I think is me. It's my favorite of the three. I like it more than Harvest. Uh, just personal tastes. Yeah, comes a time has probably one of the five or six greatest pure pop songs Neil ever wrote with a lot of love, not whole lot of love, just a lot of love. Yes. <laughs> um, and that, that in the inclusion of that song, and I think Neil's version is way better than the, the, than Nic- the Nicola Larson's. Yeah. yeah had, had, had a huge hit uh, with that song. And that, that the inclusion of that song is enough to make this a super underrated record that should have, or could have made the cut, but man, there are so many others that, that we had to leave this one out. The next one that we left out, um, okay, it's Towns Van Zant's Delta Mama Blues from 1971. But it, it isn't so much about this album as it is about Towns Van Zant's entire repertoire and his yeah. entire discography. Um, in my opinion, he is the second greatest country music songwriter who ever lived after Hank Williams. Yes, I think he's better than Willie Nelson. Um, and quite ar- arguably the second greatest American lyricist of all time after Bob Dylan. And that's saying something. Yeah, um, it really is. Ta- Towns Van Zant had a streak of albums in the late 60s, early 70s that are just impeccable, awe-inspiring, heartbreaking, and heartwarming all at the same time. Delta Mama Blues is maybe one of the two or three best of that streak. Um, and there's so much greatness in this and underrated for his influence on a lot of the Americana alt country movement later on. But because it was so hard to pick a great Towns Van Zandt album because they're all so good, uh, we had to leave it off. <laughs> yeah. And it, for what it's worth, I think a lot of us in Gen X and uh, the millennial uh, era, uh, our introduction to Towns was uh, the use of his cover of Dead Flowers yeah. in The Big Lebowski. Yeah. Which is unfortunate because, yeah, it's a wonderful cover, but yeah, Towns' his own stuff is pretty awe-inspiring, and he's one of those guys. There's like a, a tradition that pretty much started like turn of the century uh, when you and I were living in New York. We were like all these dead guys that didn't get much credit back in the yeah. 70s, 
right. in the early 80s, all of a sudden uh, built the cult following among the young ones. Right. And it's still growing. So I think Towns may actually end up being like a, a super duper star by like, what, 2050? I hope rate. so. He deserves yeah. it. Yeah, that'd all be right. great. Okay, the next, next one. 180 uh, degrees opposite of Towns Van Zandt. No shit. Uh, Candy O by the cars. Uh, now, after uh, 1978's uh, debut record, The Cars, uh, lots of bands wanted to be The Cars, yeah. and they they sure tried. And then The Cars released Candio, and they made everybody realize they can't actually be The Cars. Yeah. Uh, this is a good record. Uh, All I Can Do uh, is on this, and uh, a few the, others. The title yeah. track, one of the best Cars songs ever. Oh yeah, and then the 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 album opener uh, is also like a big. Uh, a Let's go! Group. Let's go! Yeah, as wow, a, wow, 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 wow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, uh, all I can do is actually probably my my personal favorite Cars song. It's just like yeah. a really groovy, uh, soulful little thing. But anyway, a great band that had a singular uh, style. Uh, and finally, among the honorable mentions, who we got. Yes, uh, Van Morrison's 1974 classic, uh, Vidon or Vidan Fleece. This was the last album of Morrison's uh, golden period that started with 1968's Astral Weeks. And, it's, and, and those two albums are appropriate bookends because Vidon Fleece essentially is Astral Weeks part two. Um, uh, with that, all that, 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 that mystical, mysterious, jazzy folk rock. Uh, that 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 Astral Weeks pioneered. Vidon Fleece is very much um, uh, picks up where Astral Weeks left off. Um, yeah. It is is a gorgeous record. Um, it is one of Van Morrison's three or four greatest albums. Uh, I came really close to like really forcing this into this uh, into this top twenty list, but then I looked at the others that we put in there, and I asked, "Damn it, I have to leave Van out." Um, yeah, but yeah, v- Vidon Fleece is just. This, this this immaculate perfect uh like i said is is it's jazz folk rock um but what like, with like a a level of mysticism and mystery that only van morrison can put into anything yeah really. i mean this is basically you know van has had this habit in his career of being moored and being wonderful and then being unmoored yeah. and then being moored again uh this yeah. is when he got moored again uh following yeah. moondance and astral weeks yeah. uh very good stuff So uh, there you have our honorable mentions, uh, and we'll get into the top 20 shortly. On this episode, Chris and I counted down the 20 most underrated albums of the 1970s. On the next episode, we'll examine the career and discography of a band deeply indebted to the heavy metal, progressive rock, and punk rock of that decade. Soundgarden are forever ingrained in music lovers' minds as one of Seattle grunge rock's big four, along with Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and Alice in Chains. However, time and modern bullshit critical revisionism has rendered them as the most overlooked of the big four. This is unfair, considering that they not only predated the other three bands, they arguably had the most distinct and original sound of the four. Join us on the next episode as we uncover Soundgarden, a legacy. Okay, so here we are, folks, at the cusp of our top 20 most underrated albums of the 1970s. Uh, We're right, everyone else is wrong. 
with that said, Arturo, uh, kick us off with the number 20 album on this list. Number 20 is Joni Mitchell with Don Juan's Reckless Daughter, her double album from 1977. Now, if you can get past the poor taste album cover of Joni wearing blackface makeup, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, you'll find one of the richest and most rewarding albums uh, in Mitchell's vaunted discography. Coming right after her classic mid-decade trilogy of uh, stylistically eclectic folk rock, you know, Court and Spark, The Hissing of Summer Lawns, and Hegira, and right before she launched uh, headfirst, into cheesy traditional jazz pop standards, this album finds her flexing her jazz muscles in a way that complements her brand, her brand of a literary folk rock much better. Um, her first venture into jazz is by far her best, and I would argue this is her last great album until she got infected with the virus that troubled many of the great musical artists of her generation, 80s-itis. Uh, the highlights yeah. the highlights are actually the least jazzy tracks. You have the Afro-Cuban rhythmic stomp of the 10th world and the groove-tastic Afrobeat of Dreamland. Yeah, so you're not into the 16-minute uh, uh, warbling jazz bit? <laughs> no. Yeah, that, that, took, that took up all of side two, by the way. Yeah. Uh, uh, interesting to note uh, that weather report uh, is all over this record. That was yeah. Jaco Pistorius, uh, Pistorius's band. Uh, yes. One of the great jazz bassists of all time is featured prominently on a very good Joni Mitchell record. Go figure. All right. So now number 19, one, the one that we just squeezed into this list, Chris. Yes. Uh, I love this album. Uh, the talking heads fear of music from 1979. How, how, how can this album be so underappreciated and not be revered at the highest level? More songs about buildings and food came just before Fear of Music. Remain in Light came immediately afterward. Both of those records have been canonized, and this one has left behind at the station. I really don't understand that because it is balls out brilliant. One great song after another with no hiccups. And I hear an unmistakable concept album here, one that floors me. The tightest, grooviest, most upbeat song begins the record, an Afrobeat-inflected uh, uh, song called Izimbra. The loosest, darkest, most ethereal, and most barely their song ends the record, uh, the appropriately titled Drugs. <laughs> and in between, the songs proceed along the path in order, and again, along those bookends, and... It grows moodier and stranger and bleaker, and it loses its structure as it goes along so that by the time we get to the end, uh, there's almost no there there. Uh, Each song also covers one distinct thing that scares people or makes them paranoid. Whether that's money or urban blight or crime, the afterlife, growing older, societal decay, and yes, drugs. Uh, But this is also a really funny record, walking a fine line between tongue-in-cheek and morbid and between cool and weird. I dare you to listen to the three Talking Heads albums listed here in succession. One, uh, you'll experience no drop-off in quality, and two, I think this one will stand out more than the other two, even if you think this one isn't the best. Uh, It is, or at least should be, the most memorable of the bunch. I think it is the best. It's clearly my favorite, and it's one of my ten favorite albums of all time. 
yeah, I love I love this album too, and I think it's great, but it falls just short of all time classic. The reason why, very quickly, all I'm going to do is I'm going to quote from quite possibly the most quoted person in this entire podcast. That is the dean of ro- of music journalism, Robert Criscow, from his 1979 review in the Village Voice. Hello, Bob. Quote, yeah. Uh, I hope he listens to our podcast at some point because we, yeah. we, we really quote him a lot. I do, at least. Yes. Yes, right. you do. Quote. And it, it, the pocket review. His pocket reviews are really short, so it's okay. Um, <laughs> David Byrne's celebration of paranoia is a little obsessive. But like they say, that doesn't mean somebody isn't trying to get him. I just wish material as relatively expansive as Found a Job or The Big Country were available to open up the context a little. That way, a plausible prophecy like life during wartime might come off as cautionary realism instead of ending up in the nutball corner with self-referential fantasies like paper and memories can't wait. And although I'm impressed with the gritty weirdness of the music, it is a little narrow, a little sweetening might help. I kind of agree with that last bit. A little sweetening might help. Yeah, well, but that's the reason that I like it is because it is, you know, it's it's got that uh, kind of icy, uh, detached. Uh, t- like I said, it's it's not their most sardonic record, but it's I, I think it's their most pointed record, and so yeah. I kind I kind of like that that leanness. Uh, uh, it, that that really speaks to me. But Bob, I, I understand where he's coming from there. Yeah, no, there isn't a big uh, the big country on this record and there's not a once in a lifetime. Uh, I'll give it that, but it's, but it does have life during wartime. I'll give it that. So, all right. Moving on. Moving on. Yes. Number 18 on the 20 most underrated albums, Leonard Skinnerd second helping from 1974. As you could imagine, it's their second album. Uh, their debut album from a year earlier is the one that lands on most best of all time lists, but this is the album that has sweet home Alabama. It also has the revved up honky tonk of Call Me the Breeze, the best J.J. Kale cover ever recorded. Absolutely. It also has the crunchy riff monster working for MCA. It also has the crushingly tender The Ballad of Curtis Lowe, which proves that Ronnie Van Zant could write touching odes to the downfallen as well as the best country music writers. I would say this is their last truly great album before they got formulaic and started to rest on their laurels. Uh, I don't know about that. I, th- I think Street Survivors is pretty strong, uh, you know, because Steve Gaines is such a great player, so he added to the sure. band. Uh, yeah, this is a really strong record. Uh, uh, this is one of those, not quite like pronounced Leonard Skinner. It, it's not right. quite an album where if, if if you haven't heard it, yes, you have because of classic rock radio. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of this stuff, just remember, Don't Ask Me No Questions is on this record too. Yeah. Uh, really good song. Uh, and so, yeah, yes, an album that has Sweet Home Alabama on it is underrated. Uh, we assure you uh, <laughs> uh, that, that it is. And it's just really great. And I agree with you, by the way, on Call Me the Breeze. Uh, yeah. That just uh, that's probably my favorite Alan besides Freebird, obviously my second yeah. favorite Alan Collins solo uh, yeah. ever. Uh, yeah. That that guy could shred, and he was pretty much a uh, Rossington wasn't bad either. But Collins was just a genius soloist, and uh, yeah, he gets to let loose here. All right, number seventeen. Oh, I love this one too, Chris. Okay, uh, we're talking about Fleetwood Max Tusk from nineteen seventy nine. Now, how do you follow one of the best and most beloved studio albums of all time? 
by throwing out this weird ass disjointed curveball. Uh, that's part of what makes it so great. Uh, the relations between the bandmates were so strained by this point, it seems like they proceeded like they just didn't give a hoot anymore. Or at least Lindsey Buckingham did. Uh, my friend and mentor Matty Karras has said, if you remove all of the Stevie Nicks and Christine McVie stuff on the record, it would be perfect. Uh, maybe, but I mostly disagree with that. Uh, but anyway, uh, here's Buckingham uh, on this album doing his three-piece demo jams in his home and otherwise producing the shit out of the Stevie Nicks and Christine McVie songs uh, in the studio. Uh, it's a wacky uh, but wonderful uh, record that has perhaps the prettiest moments uh, del- delivered uh, by each of the three songwriters during this iteration of the band. Uh, in order, those would be the chorus to the album opener, uh, the Gaga in Love opener over and over by McVie. Yeah. Uh, the uh, Buckingham's aching, longing vocals on Save Me a Place, uh, one of the best songs about loneliness I've ever heard. And uh, Stevie Nicks possessing and uh, uh, squeezing tightly to the chords of the first verse on her beautiful child. Uh, Tusk is one of Rock's great bastard children. It's a twisted masterpiece in its own right. Yeah, no, I, I, with all due respect to your friend, Matty Karras, he's full of shit. Um, listen, Sarah's one of the best songs Stevie Nicks ever wrote. I love Sisters of the Moon. Sisters of the Moon is gorgeous. Uh, I mean, on, it, it should be the, the ending track on anyone's album, but here it's only like the ending of disc one, um, disc two. I mean, I love all the Lindsey Buckingham. I'm a big Lindsey Buckingham fan, but I want to shine a little light on Christine McVie and Stevie Nicks. Um, yeah. They deserve it. Never forget that that's one oh, of the that's best. That's a great song. That's one of the best McVie compositions ever. Yeah. Um, yeah. I Honey agree. High. Honey High is great. McVie was an underrated songwriter. Yeah. She um, really was. Yeah. McVie stuff on this record is immaculate. Uh, yeah. Like over and over is just, that's my favorite of her songs. It's just yeah. gorgeous. Yeah. Uh, no, and, Tusk, and then, Tusk yeah. is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and if there are bombs, you know, the the one or two throwaways on it are Stevie songs, but come on, Beautiful Child, Sarah, uh, and a a few others on there. And again, uh, I do understand Maddie's point. The the, the Lindsay stuff is just kind of jaw-dropping in its kind of simplicity and rawness, but some of those songs are just amazing. In addition to Save Me a Place, uh, What Makes You Think You're the One, yeah. And then yeah. Uh, there's a couple of songs there that uh, I suspect uh, and I, there's other critics have speculated must have inspired Prince because mm. it's kind of oh, yeah. it's got that little bit of kind of uh, jangly kind of funky, weird kind of stuff that Prince did in the early. 80s. Right. So right. imagine right. that Lindsey Buckingham leading uh, a, a road to uh, Prince. It happens. <laughs> it happens. And what also happens is that an album by one of the biggest bands of all time is actually underrated. <laughs> this leads us to number 16, Led Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin 3 from 1970. Uh, couched right between the groundbreaking Led Zeppelin 2 and the epic monumental Led Zeppelin 4, this is the Zeppelin album that people tend to forget. Um, it's hard to call any album that has immigrant song and since I've been loving you underrated. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but, 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 but this album just never gets mentioned enough when canonical Zeppelin albums are put under the microscope. Um, it was a bit controversial with fans at the time of release because of the large number of acoustic folky songs. 
but man, have you listened to them? You know, yeah. like a- acoustic Zeppelin is just as mesmerizing and powerful as any of their electric Riffarola workouts. Yeah, Tangerine. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Their variation of the old folk standard gallows pole drives with an intensity that most bands couldn't match with electric instruments. Yeah. And, and, I, and, like, I, and like you said, Tangerine proves that George Harrison was full of shit when he said in the early 70s that Zeppelin had no ballads. Um, yeah, in fact, yeah, it, is, it is arguably one of the band's five greatest ballads. Uh, yep. the, fa- the fact that most of the tracks on this album haven't been played to death on classic rock radio makes this album a fresh and rewarding listen every time you click play. Yeah, and I'll say this. Uh, How the West Was Won, which yeah. uh, made my uh, personal list of the greatest uh, live albums ever made, yeah, uh, or at least my favorite live albums uh, a million years ago on an early episode of, of the cast. Uh, the t- my two favorite, and I think the two most revealing uh, recordings on that album are the versions of The Immigrant Song and Since I've Been Loving You. Yeah. Uh, the unbelievable power of Bonham's drumming and the proof that, yeah, uh, actually, uh, Robert Plant could scream like that on first take, uh, you know, so, uh, incredible album. And again, notice our trend here, folks. It's the album between the two canonized records that gets getting the short shrift. Uh, that seems to happen over and over and over again. Uh, not just in the seventies, I think in general, a lot of times that, you know, uh, very few uh, streaks of like, you know, as we talk about like like four album, five album, even three album streaks that, you know, remain uh, in our consciousness. And albums that get short shrift right after the canonical one. Enter number 15. Yeah, uh, we're talking Bob Dylan's Desire. Uh, now, in the latest uh, Rolling Stone uh, version of their uh, 500 Greatest Albums of All Time, uh, Lady Gaga's 2011 album "Born This Way" uh, makes it just barely, and you know, in the uh, late 400s. Meanwhile, uh, "Desire," which had been at 174 uh, yeah. on the first two versions of this list from 2003 uh, and 2012, falls out completely. Uh, Lady Gaga's "Born This Way" is not a better album than "Desire." No, and it is most- not. Most people over the age of 30 will agree uh, with that statement. Uh, Behold the dangers of recency bias and perhaps inclusion. Maybe a controversial statement, but the uh, the voting populace got younger and more diverse and more female. And uh, while, you know, I mean, in some ways to pimp a butterfly being at 18 is actually agreeable, but it kind of shows the sign of the times and, uh, you know, the um, the fact that Sergeant Peppers goes from number one to number 16. Uh, which, yeah, about time. But, okay, so it's not all bad. But in this case, it's horseshit. Now, uh, Desire comes out of Dylan's oft-mocked Rolling Thunder review period, known as much for Dylan's garish stage makeup than his uh, sort of failed ambitions to form his own real band. Uh, Because of that, the and uh, the close proximity to Blood on the Tracks, probably one of the 10 best albums ever made, and because a generation or two of bar patrons... Uh, who were subject to a nonstop bludgeoning by the hurricane and constant Saturday night rotation. Uh, Desire really doesn't get the props it deserves. It is one hell of a rock record. It's looser than anything he'd done in a decade. 
and it's the one time he shared most of his songwriting with a collaborator. Uh, here specifically, that is New York theater genius and trained psychoanalyst Jacques Levy. Uh, and uh, the songs alternate between the utterly mischievous, as on the 11-minute Rebel Reveille, Joey, uh, and the utterly profound uh, Sarah, the, uh, the desperate album closer, uh, uh, which is a plea to his soon-to-be ex-wife. And he sometimes achieves both at once. The awesome beyond comprehension Isis, one of my favorite Dylan songs, which, you know, just it has that kind of a uh, little bit like Frankie Lee and Judas Priest, where it's, it's kind of like this funny, uh, like weird uh, narrative that is actually pretty profound. The idea of the guy who leaves his uh, true love uh, to go find his adventures only to figure out that like, holy shit, he belonged back there in the first place. Uh, yeah. And it rocks. Uh, musically, the star of the record is Scarlett Rivera. Uh, that is some rock and rollicking violin there. Now, uh, Dylan would not be this good again for 21 years and wouldn't be. <laughs> no, he wouldn't. <laughs> and he would not be better than this for 25 years. Uh, now, both of those records, Time Out of Mind and Love and Theft, are on that updated RS500 uh, list I just referenced. Somehow, the stuff he did in the ditch and during the comeback, get more love than desire. That makes no sense to me, and I'm sure that makes no sense to you too either uh, there, Arturo. No, it doesn't. Um, I prefer to listen to this album in a vacuum. And in a vacuum, it's like rocking, rocking folk music is what this is. You know, Hurricane is the angry, punkish folk song that I wish Dylan would have done in the 1960s. It it belongs there. Um, For those of you younger or maybe more into recent rock, uh, and if you're into the White Stripes and have heard their, seen their live shows or heard their bootlegs, they do a great version of One More Cup of Coffee. Um, the original is on this album. Um, and, and it also has, uh, what's, what's the other track? Oh, yeah, Mozambique, which is yeah. beautiful, beautifully lush romantic song. Uh, one of one of his one of his lushest uh, songs, um, yeah. melodically, lyrically, you name it. Um, yeah, this is a great, great song. You, you have a, a romance in Durango where he alternates between English and Spanish lyrics. Yep. Basi- he, he's yeah. basically writing a mariachi song. And speaking of uh, best of the best, this next album at number fourteen, I do think is among this artist's best of the best. That is uh, Elton John's Tumbleweed Connection from 1970. This isn't just one of the most underrated albums of the 1970s. It's the most underrated album in Elton's entire discography. And in my opinion, one of his three best, period. Um, He buttered his bread in the 1970s with beautiful ballads, Boogie Woogie Rock and Roll, and Majestic Glam Rock. But this is the album that shows where his true roots lay, Classic R&B, country, folk, and most importantly, gospel. Heavy, heavy on the gospel. Mm -hmm. These are gospel hymns that exchange God for stories of people settling in the Wild West in the 19th 19th century. Yes, lyricist Bernie Taupin always had a fetish for all things Americana, but Elton wrote music that was sympathetic to Taupin's Mm -hmm. lyrical vision. Uh, tracks like Amarina, um, Burn Down the Mission, and Country Comfort have a yearning that just pulls on your soul. Uh, it's astonishing that this album didn't sell that well when it was released. It would take another year before Elton started his awesome streak of hit singles. 
But uh, nevertheless, this album remains one of the jewels in his catalog. Yeah, and and interestingly enough, uh, I think the most well known song on this record is "Madman Across the Water." Uh, no, which, it's not. It's not on this album. Yeah, it is. "Madman uh, Across the Water" is on "Madman Across the Water" from 1971. Oh, okay. Uh, but it looks like from what I'm looking at on Spotify, it's uh, it's on this record as what the you're last looking track. is that yeah, uh, it, there was a, a primitive version of that song that was included as an outtake or like a bonus track when it was reissued. Yeah, and yeah, it's definitely not the radio uh, version. It's it's yeah. raw, it's raw, and you know Mick Ronson like you know shredding uh, right. on it. Uh, but it is on it, so it's like basically okay. The well, the most well known composition uh, yeah. uh, on it is probably "Madman Across the Water," but uh, and which is funny because, like you said, the the, the rest of it is very gospelly, very countryish, very um, uh, very uh, more subdued, and it's it's a great pop record, but it's more subdued than and a little less um, melodramatic than his other stuff. Yeah. I think that's a fair statement. Absolutely. All right. Speaking to uh, maybe not melodramatic, but we're going somewhere completely different. Number 13. Yeah. We, we Speaking of the parallel universe, uh, this is Funkadelic's Free Your Mind and Your Ass Will Follow from 1970. Uh, this is where I think George Clinton uh, first uh, kind of thrusts into uh, the, uh, the, the consciousness, uh, in, at least in the mainstream and kind of comes on the map. Uh, this is my treadmill album go-to. Uh, <laughs> I play the 10 minute wacky, funky, gnarly, so tweaky. It's hard to believe title track over and over again, which, yeah. I mean, you want to talk about like, uh, like acid rock, uh, production with all kinds of weird stuff going on and one kick ass riff. Uh, yeah. in the middle of it and just this, uh, this really kind of subtle groove, but it's hypnotic as hell. Uh, now this is what happens when a bunch of trained black R and B musicians from Detroit take a lot of drugs and crank out psychedelic rock. And amazingly, that is exactly what it sounds like and why, <laughs> and why this album is so thrilling, uh, with the extended funk and acid soul workouts on this record and the sheer nastiness and, and beauty of the next year's maggot brain, George Clinton was made. Uh, without this, he never tears off the roof off the sucker for more than 50 people. Right. Yeah. And this, uh, I mean, Prince has always gone on record saying Funkadelic uh, is one of his foundational influences. And you can hear, oh, sure. especially, especially his guitar playing. Eddie Hazel is yeah. a huge influence on Prince as a guitar player. Oh, no doubt. I mean, like Maggot Brain, I can I can hear Prince, you know, being being gestated, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, on on that song. But 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 this album is very underrated because again, you know, Clinton is more uh, regarded for his uh, Parliament stuff, uh, which you know, Dr. Dre and uh, right. Digital Underground uh, sampled so heavily in the uh, early nineties, but, uh, this is my favorite stuff. This early funkadelic stuff. It's just great. Yeah. And, um, move, move, uh, continuing in the realm of great R and B soul acts. Uh, number 12 is the temptations skies, the limit. Now, uh, the temptations will always be known as one of the best and, and, uh, if not the best vocal groups, uh, to come out of the Motown factory in the 1960s, they'll justifiably be revered and looked back on for their string of immaculate hit singles from the mid to late 1960s. However, 
Arguably, their most interesting music came in the early 1970s when producer Norman Whitfield and writer Barrett Strong combined to give the vocal combo a wider, more expansive sound palette, heavily influenced by the symphonic soul of Isaac Hayes and the R&B funk pop hybrid of Sly and the Family Stone. By the time of this album's release in 1971, uh, internal conflicts within the group meant that only two of the original Temptations were left. <laughs> so, uh, so it's tempting, no pun intended, to really call this a Whitfield strong album. <laughs> you know, uh, nevertheless, it's brilliant and one of the most visionary soul albums of the decade. Uh, Just My Imagination, later covered brilliantly by the Rolling Stones, um, was the number one smash hit. But the album's true MO is in tracks uh, like the epic progressive soul of smiling faces sometimes, uh, the unresolved tension of the uh, anthemic fuzz guitar-driven Umgenza Ze Ulimwengu, and the scorching political funk rock of Ball of Confusion. Um, if any of you are into Michael Kiwanuka, Leon Bridges, or Curtis Harding, this is where they got a lot of their influence from. Yeah, it, no, absolutely. I mean, for the kind of the modern day uh, uh, retro uh, soul, this is yeah. uh, this is a source. Now, uh, the Temptations uh, again, fascinating record and fascinating story. Uh, this album kind of gets the short shrift because this is during the period where all of those uh, Motown hit makers uh, yeah. got a level of uh, freedom. And all of a sudden, uh, the the genius stuff. It's like uh, 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 Barry uh, Barry Gordy finally let them free all at the same time. So within like I think a year of each other, you get uh, "Music of My Mind" by Stevie Wonder, uh, "What's Going On" by Marvin Gaye, and uh, this record. And so uh, that was a trend. Uh, the Temptations were were a part of it, but again, uh, that with the exception of just my imagination which will never die. Um, right. The rest of it is uh, sort of, unfortunately, uh, kind of left in the dustbin when it shouldn't be because Eddie Kendrick and Norman Whitfield and company were really great. Yeah. All right. This leads us to number 11, a criminally underrated album. Number 11, Chris. Yeah, very criminally underrated. We're talking about Pink Floyd's Animals, in which Floyd does Orwell's Animal Farm. Uh, as it turns out, conceptual stadium-ready guitar and keyboard rock goes a lot better with science fiction and true nihilism than with all that stuff about Sid Barrett losing his mind and going Nazi. <laughs> uh, so uh, this is my personal favorite Floyd record. It may be Arturo's favorite, too, or at least it's up there. Um, I don't know. Like For me, it's actually between this and metal, uh, pro probably my two favorites. Uh, but. Right. Anyway, uh, like a lot of the records on this list, it's the one that sits in between the two in the canon. In this case, those albums are 1975's uh, Wish You Were Here and 1979's The Wall. Uh, on this record, uh, dogs and sheep suck me in every time I hear them. These are long, winding, adventurous, intense compositions that capture the themes of societal dis uh, dissolution and madness with real pathos. Uh, really, the only thing that's been kept alive in the above-board Floyd myth from all from this album is the giant inflatable pig on the cover. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, we suspect if you're under 40 years old, you probably haven't heard it or at least haven't spent too much time with it. Uh, go do that and go do that now. 
Yeah, um, it's not my favorite Pink Floyd album, but I will say this: it is their final good album. It's their last good album. Well, yeah, um, it, it's yeah. after um, it's after this. Uh, this is the last album that they actually really recorded as Pink Floyd because it's after this album that uh, Roger Waters' ego uh, 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 ran amok. And yeah. uh, he took over just maniacal, egomaniacal um, control of this band. And I've never been a fan of The Wall except for like a handful of songs. Um, I actually kind of hate that record. I find it offensive. Um, it's, it's a whiny, rich, spoiled rock star complaining about being famous and having the audacity to compare it to like, you know, being uh, Hitler in Nazi Germany and controlling yeah. minions. Fuck but, you, Roger. <laughs> it is David Gilmore's finest moment. But uh, as, yes, as a guitar player, sure. Yeah. But uh, Animals is the last album where Pink Floyd were really Pink Floyd and they were a unified front. And yeah, Waters is writing most of the material, but he was writing the skeletons of the material. And, you know, Wright and Mason and Gilmore were uh, uh, filling in the rest of it in the flesh, pun intended. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, but there anyway, you go. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. no, but, um, th- th- this is. This is quite possibly Plink Floyd. I mean, they were a progressive rock band at this point. This is them at their most proggy. <laughs> yeah, yes, it, uh, this yes it is. Uh, and usually that's a bad thing coming from me because I hate most progressive rock. But Pink Floyd and like and another band that we're going to mention later are like, you know, the 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 acceptable faces of prog rock in my opinion. And yeah, this is their last much. great album. There's always a good time to be found within the Curmudgeon Rock Reports Curmudgeonly community. That is our invite-only private Facebook group that Arturo and I launched in December. So far, it's been a spirited romp through this podcast's decidedly bent worldview, and as it turns out, through those of our members as well. Now, is Iron Maiden a good example of a band that blended musel mastery and pop accessibility to an acceptable degree? Well, one of our members sure thinks so, and we gave him the safe space to do it, damn it. If bold opinions and thoughts and passionate defenses of rock and roll are your jam, then the Curmudgeon Rock Report's curmudgeonly community is for you. Come find us, and we will probably let you in. That was the first half of our list, and now uh, let's get, well, the bottom half, anyway. Now let's get to the top half. Uh, We're coming around the bend here. We're at number 10, Uh, Arturo what is our number 10 most underrated album of the 70s? From one gigantic British prog rock band to one slightly less big <laughs> uh, uh, prog rock band. King Crimson and their album Red from 1974 is at number 10. And let me put it clear, if, 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 if I haven't made it clear before, I'm not a fan of progressive rock. I can take yes in small doses, maybe three songs, and Emerson, Lake, and Palmer in even fewer doses, maybe one song. Yeah. <laughs> but to me, King Crimson were always the acceptable face of British prog rock, along with Floyd. And they were at their best when they were reduced to a bass drums guitar trio and forced to abandon guitarist Robert Fripp's infatuation with classical music affectations. Uh, very guitar heavy, complex, but not so complex that it alienates the listener and full of appealing changes and passages that aren't meant to show off the musician's dexterity. Red is the final album of of Crimson's original incarnation and hands down one of the 10 greatest albums to ever come 
out of the progressive rock movement. It was also one of Kurt Cobain's favorite albums. So if it was good enough for Kurt, it's good enough for a couple of curmudgeons who named their podcast after a Nirvana B-side. Well, yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah, uh, Red is practically a metal song, uh, like, yeah. a, like a punkish metal song. And then, of course, yeah. you've got Starless. I mean, those are probably the two uh, standouts. And yeah, like you, like you said, this is the one record. Now, uh, most folks will know that 21st Century Schizoid Man is uh, King Crimson's most famous song. Right. Uh, uh, forever immortalized in the hip hop uh, canon by <laughs> Kanye West in, yeah. I think, his best song, Power. Uh, but yeah, I, this, this album's still underrated because again, I, I think that the whole combination of them between King Crimson and Genesis and Gentle Giant and yeah. some of those albums, I mean, it, it, it got such a, you know, rock snobs love to piss on, uh, prog rock. So, uh, this album kind of gets lumped into that, uh, sometimes, which it shouldn't because it's the good one. Right. Exactly. All right. So speaking of goodness. Sweet Goodness, number nine. Yes, very sweet goodness. Uh, we're talking about, about Emmylou Harris's Quarter Moon in a Tent Cent Town from 1978. Um, Emmylou Harris is most famous as the pretty voice in folk rock and country and western harmonies of other artists' songs. Right. Uh, she worked most famously with Graham Parsons on GP and Grievous Angel. Uh, she joined Neil Young on his uh, Ballad Star of Bethlehem. Uh, she plays Evangeline along with the band in The Last Waltz, and she crooned, again, one more cup of coffee with Bob Dylan. But Harris was a hell of a front woman in her own right, as she proved most clearly on this record. Uh, after a few previous solo albums that are most known for covers of Parsons and uh, Hank Williams and Beatles songs, here she flips the script and gives the work of contemporary country songwriters their initial fame. A uh, couple songs by uh, Jesse uh, Winchester uh, and uh, Ronnie Kroll, but the best song on here is To Daddy, uh, which is uh, Dolly Parton's uh, darkly comedic ode to her mother, uh, which admires Mama's strength in quietly enduring Daddy's BS and then adds a Fantasia where she gets to leave the guy gloriously behind once the kids are older. Uh, Dolly recorded her original version in 1976. However, that did not see the light of day for nearly 20 years. Uh, so, uh, you know, so Dolly in her version, she kind of hams up the presentation uh, a little bit. Uh, Harris keeps it uh, much more muted. Uh, she gives it a quieter, uh, more somber treatment and uh, driven by her awe-inspiring yelp of an Appalachian bred singing voice performs it in a much lovelier way. Uh, Corner Moon in a Ten Cent Town is a bit of a lost country classic. Now's the time to rescue it. Yeah, um, she may be my favorite all-time female voice in American music. And I think this is, forget about underrated, I think it's her best album, period. Um, yeah. it's her most perfect record. Everything works. Um, I love one paper kid. I ain't, I love, I ain't living long like this, which yeah. I believe is a cover of someone else. Most of her songs yeah. are covers. Yeah. 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 You know? Most of her songs, but she never wrote her songs. Um, and that's Jess Winchester. Who's a, a American, uh, draft Dodger who ran to Canada. Uh, and actually that became a hit for Waylon Jennings a couple of years later. Uh, his version yeah. is great. So, yeah. So, I mean, for, for all of you out there who've heard of Emmylou Harris, 
start with this album and then go backward if you want. Yeah, and I, I guess well, her her most famous moment in the sun was when she joined Dolly Parton uh, and Linda Ronstadt for the yeah. album Trio. Right. Uh, of course, she was the third chick because the other two were two of the biggest uh, female stars of all time. Right. Uh, that's too bad because she's just great. Right. All right. Speaking of great, it only gets greater, baby. Uh, number eight, most underrated album of the 1970s, Deep Purple. Deep Purple in Rock 19, from 1970. Now, Deep Purple Mach 2 is the term given to the second iteration or the second lineup of Deep Purple with Ian Gillen on vocals. It's known as the definitive Purple lineup, and they lasted from 1970 to 73, releasing four studio albums. Understandably, Machine Head from 1972 is the one commonly viewed as the best of the bunch because it has the all-time classic rock staples, Smoke on the Water, Highway Star, and Space Truckin'. You know that one. Yep. That one, right? Um, however, <laughs> that album, uh, Machine Head, is actually padded with some schlocky shit, unfortunately. Uh, Deep Purple and Rock is the much better, more coherent, more consistent, more inspired record. And inspired indeed as this is the album where the band were effectively reacting to the atomic bomb of heavy rock from a year ago that saw the release of the first two Led Zeppelin albums. Um, Speed King is vintage purple at their bombastic best. The breakneck speed metal of Flight of the Rat practically invented Judas Priest. Yep. And uh, Child in Time is a gorgeous, epic power ballad that proves that uh, Gillen could belt it out with the best metal singers ever. Uh, this album should be on anyone's list of greatest heavy metal albums of all time. Uh, I agree, and it's 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 definitely proto metal. I mean, it's it's ground floor for like you said, what became Judas Priest and some of the British stuff. But I think just in general, uh, the genre. I mean, they're right there because Paranoid came out the same year, right? Paranoid yeah. came out around the same time. Yeah, no, Paranoid came out a little after this one. Uh, what uh -huh. came out around this time is the first Black Sabbath album. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so it's it's right there. Uh, I agree with Child in Time. Uh, wonderful uh, metal power ballad with some unbelievable high range uh, stuff uh, from yeah. Ian Gillen. It reminds me of that episode of uh, early episode of South Park where the the guy hits the note on "Loving You" to makes the stadium blow up. Yeah, uh, it, 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 it 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 gets up there. Uh, pretty admirable stuff. Uh, yeah, this album is is uh, fucking awesome and uh, really uh, pretty perfect. Uh, for sure. And Flight of the Rat is great, too. Uh, yeah. For uh, people who don't really like Judas Priest, this is uh, this is like bearable Judas Priest. <laughs> yeah. All right. And speaking of uh, like ridiculous proto metal, number seven. Yes. Uh, we couldn't just limit. We're kind of cheating here. Uh, we're going to cover kind of three records in one fell swoop. Uh, this is the early album uh, streak of Queen. Uh, sp specifically the self-titled uh, debut from 73 and then from 74 Queen 2 and Sheer Heart Attack uh, two words can ably sum up uh, this uh, string of albums glammy and hammy <laughs> their supreme reign over Pop's dominion effectively started with the Bohemian Rhapsody in 75 and ended with Radio Gaga in 84 
The stuff before it, though, is usually treated as an add-on to the story. Well, we're here to announce that this stuff ain't an add-on to nothing. Uh, this is some masterfully complex, entertaining, winky-cheeky space rock. Uh, vocals uh, that seem to be overdubbed 200 times over. Uh, layered lead guitar magic from Brian May. Campy ballads like Killer Queen, which is from Sheer Heart Attack. Uh, mix in uh, without seams alongside uh, spaced out magically strange epics like White Queen as it began and its counterpart, The March of the Black Queen, both from Queen 2. And they also propel an early bona fide anthem into being on their self-titled debut, which is the chugging Ernest Keep Yourself Alive. Uh, these three albums are all great and way, way, way underrated. Uh, for what it's worth, uh, W. Axel Rose back in 1989 proclaimed yeah. that Queen 2 was one of his go-to, two go-to albums, along with Nevermind the Bullocks and uh, by the Sex Pistols and Always Would Be. Now, seeing how that weirdo proceeded with life, maybe that shouldn't be a surprise. Still, <laughs> it's a solid endorsement of the album and of early Queen in general. Yeah, um, Queen Two also has Seven Seas of Rye, one of yes. their first their first big hit, and at least in the UK and in Europe, it has Ogre Battle, one of my favorite. Yeah, balls to the wall, just stupid, silly, but awesome. <laughs> yeah, you know, mo- monolithic swords yeah. and sorcery. You know, yeah. heavy metal anthems. Um, it's got Father to Son, which I've always liked. Uh, the Fairy Fellers Master Stroke. Coming yeah. from the mouth of uh, Freddie Mercury, that's that's saying something. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, not everyone loved it. Would you like to hear uh, Robert Criscow's five-word review of Queen Two? Sure. Wimpoid, royaloid, heavy, heavoid, android, void. <laughs> okay, that's kind of perfect. Um, yeah, uh, God bless you, Chris Gow. Uh Yeah, he, he Chris Gow at his best is like the greatest uh, writer of rock and roll of all time. Um, so thank thank you for continually bringing in Bob's uh, uh, best stuff. And moving on, we go from uh, British lads to uh, Mexicali uh, goodness and awesomeness. Yes, number six, Santana with Santana 3 from 1971. Now, the first two Santana albums, the self-titled one and Abraxas, get all the praise and had all the classic rock radio hits. It's unfortunate, though, that this album, the third and final album with the original Santana band lineup, gets overlooked because as great as the first two albums are, This is the one that solidifies them as the musical force of nature that they really were. Um, There were problems within the band at at this time due to several members dealing with drug addictions, but you wouldn't guess that by listening to the record. Um, Whereas the first two records ebbed and flowed with varieties and tempo and mood, the third album has this relentless drive and momentum, especially from uh, Toussaint L'Overture onward that is befitting of the visionary blues, rock, jazz, salsa, Afro-Cuban hybrid that they created. Uh, Later throughout the decade, Santana would get lost down the jazz fusion rabbit hole a little too much, but Santana 3 is a testament to the hottest and arguably the most innovative band to come out of the 1960s San Francisco scene. 
Yeah, I, I agree with that latter statement. Uh, this band was ridiculous at its best, and yeah. uh, there's just a lot of just great uh, like workout uh, stuff uh, on this record. Uh, strange but true. Uh, the founders of Journey are in this band uh, at this time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, but uh, but man, good stuff. Uh, strangely enough, uh, this uh, this album also includes "No One to Depend On," uh, yep. which is one of their more reliable uh, radio uh, rock. Uh, staples but yeah the rest of it like you said from uh, tucson low overture on is just like a, not just a, it's not a jam it's actually deliberate i mean you can't call it a yeah. jam it's you can actually probably see santana putting a board like you know putting <laughs> putting the notes uh you know the note boards together uh just really great stuff and a good call for it to be on this list yeah all right so that brings us to number five an album that we have spoken about end length, but we can't get enough of it. We're going to talk a little bit about it again. Number five. Yes. Uh, Rendon, Richard and Linda Thompson's Pour Down Like Silver. Now, uh, we cover the making of this album, Pour Down Like Silver, pretty extensively on that episode uh, there where we did a retrospective of Richard and Linda Thompson's career. But we really didn't take the time to tell you that, gosh darn it, uh, this album is ridiculously underrated. It's actually hard to find out there. Uh, compiled YouTube playlists are your best bet to uh, retrieve this record nowadays. Uh, we should reiterate here uh, that pulling off the feat of releasing an album of ambiguously and simultaneously spiritual and romantic songs right under the nose of the watchful leaders of London's local Islamic Sufi community is quite, quite amazing, as are the songs and their spare but uh, intimate uh, recordings. Uh, the highlight for me will always be the intense hypnotic eight minute splendor and wonder of Night Comes In. In a catalog full of gems, uh, this may actually be the brightest one that Richard and Linda ever pumped out. Yeah, there's not much I can add to this. Uh, I mean, my God, I mean, I, I, I said a lot about this in our Richard and Linda episode. Um, it's, it's their, of, of, of the Linda albums that Richard made, um, this is the sparsest and probably the most soulful of the whole bunch because it's the most spiritual one, um, which is why he he, uh, he made it sparse and, and, and really minimalist. Um, whereas a lot of people would think, well, I'm making an album about God. Whoa, over the top with arrangements, over the top with vocals and instruments. No, no Richard does. Richard and Linda do the opposite. If, if you're doing something about God, it has to be humble. <laughs> yeah, and and, st and Streets of Paradise uh, is actually more humble than it sounds and is an incredible rock song uh, right. and album opener. So that's the other one. So uh, so check that one out. And also check out uh, the next record, which is the third and uh, most uh, underregarded uh, album of Bowie's uh, Berlin Trio. Right. This is the fourth most underrated album of the 1970s, David Bowie's Lodger from 1979. Now, the Berlin Trilogy is Bowie's series, for those of you who don't know enough about Bowie, and you should. It's his series of albums recorded with Brian Eno in the mid to, le to late 1970s that may very well be the absolute peak of Bowie's artistry and innovation. Of the two albums from 1977, Low and Heroes, the former, Low, is regularly cited as one of the greatest albums of all time with irresistible angular art rock on side A 
and lush, gorgeous synthesizer instrumentals on side B. Remember, this was the era of vinyl. Yep. Uh, uh, the latter album, Heroes, was basically low part two, but contained the title track, Heroes, one of Bowie's greatest and most enduring songs. Um, however, uh, Lodger is the one in the trilogy that gets usually forgotten. And it's a damn shame because the songwriting is actually better on this one than on the other two. Um, it eschews the formula and format of the first two albums for weird, quirky, oddly catchy, and wildly eclectic art pop um, from the alien rhythms and North African backing vocals that power African night flight to the freaky deaky reggae meets Turkish pop of Yassassin to the mutant funk of DJ to the campy romp of boys keep swinging whose chorus melody, by the way, blur stole for their 1997 song MOR uh, to the intense dance floor workout of look back in anger. Gee, was Noel Gallagher referencing this song when he wrote "Don't Look Back in Anger"? He, he, <laughs> uh, he was he was like referencing every song from uh, from Britain uh, between like 1965 <laughs> and 1978 or yeah, 79. No shit, no shit. Yeah. Um, in any case, Lodger is Bowie's most consistently rewarding and compelling album, simply due to the fact that it's one of his most unfairly ignored. I personally rank it among his five best. Yeah, uh, a couple of things to note about Lodger. Uh, first, uh, album opener, Fantastic Voyage, and uh, uh, Boys Keep Swinging are the same song. Uh, like, <laughs> like, like, like literally the same, yeah. the same uh, music, uh, yeah. just done at a different pace and slightly different uh, melody. So that's a neat trick. Uh, and also worth mentioning, you know, Brian, Brian Eno uh, didn't officially uh, produce this record, uh, but was oh, he, I thought he did. No, I think Visconti had the production credit on all three of the Berlin records. Um, uh, and then, but Eno was involved, um, okay. as a, as an advisor and, uh, arranger and, and other, uh, other capacities. Uh, that said it, I don't think it's a coincidence that, uh, Lodger and fear of music sound very similar. Yeah. <laughs> and they have yeah. the kind of same aesthetic and kind of yeah. same, uh, same grooves. Uh, I think, uh, this album is on a par. I mean, obviously, Fear of Music is just a personal favorite, but I, I think that uh, the best uh, stuff on any of these records, uh, both those records are probably DJ and Red Money. Uh, yeah. uh, just some really uh, great uh, stuff there. And then always worth mentioning that Carlos Alomar was really on a roll at this point, too, as yeah. a guitarist. So there you go. Yeah. All right. So this leads us. We're getting to the end. Number three, the third most underrated album of the 1970s. Another uh, personal all-time favorite of mine, Al Green's The Bell Album from 1977. Al Green, uh, the legend uh, uh, that he is, said goodbye to soul and R&B ostensibly for good in 1977 with The Bell Album by making perhaps the best R&B album of the late 1970s. Yeah. Green, you see, had recommitted his life to Jesus Christ after a truly horrible 1974 incident in which his girlfriend poured boiling grits down his back as he was in his shower and then immediately shot herself to death back in the bedroom. I probably would have leaned on the Lord, too, after that. So (laughs) three years later, uh, the man uh, who would soon be known as Reverend Al Green 
on his own and without longtime collaborator Willie Mitchell gave us this last astonishing volley uh, coming from one of the true giants uh, of that era. The title track, uh, simply put, is one of the greatest uh, popular music songs ever written. Dreamy, sexy, wide-eyed, joyous, contemplative, drums squarely in the middle of the mix, Al's voice reaching its highest register multiple times, and all the while he's telling the object of his desire that God wins the battle in a rout. If you don't listen closely, you'll miss this. Belle is rhythm and blues herself. Al Mm. is the Holy Spirit seeking entry into R&B sinful heart. The whole thing is incredibly moving, as is the rest of the record, which is not as explicit in its Christian worldview as Bell, but is nevertheless gorgeous, upbeat, and all above all else, hopeful. I especially enjoy uh, I Feel Good. Uh, one thing to note is that the beat on this record and the drums are just consistently great, and also Al Green plays most of those bluesy guitar licks himself. Wow. Yeah. I love this uh, album and you should too. I love it as well. It's one of my, I think it's one of Green's two best albums. Uh, This one and Call Me. Um, Yeah, the the fact that he plays all the guitar is what really uh, surprised me the most. Um, He's he's not a virtuoso guitar player, but his guitar playing is just good enough um, that it really, it really, you know, it really helps it here a lot. All right. I'm going to do my third Robert Criscow quote. There you go. uh, To pack this up for the Bell album. And this, this is in 1977 when he wrote it. Since 1975, Green has been making albums on which two or three real songs were supplemented by material so vague and unpredictable, it almost announced itself as filler improvised in the studio, which is not to say I didn't find much of it hypnotic. Now, on a self-produced album focused around his own frequently acoustic guitar, The filler comes front and center with new assurance and perhaps even its own formal identity. The real songs themselves, his best in years, sound improvised in the studio. And more than ever, it all holds together around Green's agile rhythm, dynamics, and coloration and his obsession with the soul-body dualism at the heart of the genre he now rules unchallenged. Of course, now being 1977. Yeah, no, I and, and absolutely. I mean, uh, l- let's just put it this way: Al, before he came, became the reverend and did gospel uh, full time, uh, left on top. Yep, uh, absolutely. He, yeah, he he was at the. Uh, well, even though I think "Call Me" is one of his best records and one of the best albums of all time, uh, this album might be his grandest accomplishment for the reasons that I talked about because of its yeah. positivity, but also again, just Bell, unbelievable, blows me away. Yeah. So, all right. Now we go from someone who was down with God to someone who was <laughs> not down with God. <laughs> not, not, not in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> uh, the number two, the second most underrated album of the 1980s, 1970s, Lou Reed, my man, with Coney Island Baby in 1976. Now, here we go. To explain this album, you need context. Context is key in understanding this record. Lou Reed had huge breakthrough success with 1972's Transformer album. That's the one that has Walk on the Wild Side. And uh, two best-selling live albums, Rock and Roll Animal from 74 and Lou Reed Live from 75. However, 
Reed at this time was becoming very unhappy with how his record label, RCA, was marketing and promoting his studio albums. The Bob Ezrin produced Berlin from 1973, while a beautiful and powerfully moving record is a concept album about a drug-addicted prostitute who loses her kids to the authorities and eventually kills herself. Oh, joyful stuff. (laughs) Joyful stuff. Not quite something to sell to a mainstream audience, and naturally, it flopped. Uh, His 1974 album, Sally Can't Dance, was a commercial hit at first. At number 10, it was his highest-selling charting album ever. But it was ravaged by the critics and soon fell off the charts very quickly. Personally, I love that record, but I know I'm alone on on an island uh, with that one. Anyway... Knowing his RCA contract was finishing soon and knowing that RCA would release anything he put out, Reed perversely committed one of the most blatant acts of career suicide in rock history and undoubtedly the biggest fuck you to a record label an artist has ever given. This is called Metal Machine Music. Oh, Uh, yeah. (laughs) Released in 1975, it was a double album of grating guitar noise and feedback on a continuous obnoxious loop. Nope, this record didn't sell either. Um, Proof that Metal Machine Music was nothing more than Reed fucking with his label came in the fact that just three months after the album's release, Reed was back in the studio to make his last album for RCA, an album that would become or be his sweetest, cleanest, clearest, most commercially appealing album of his career to date, Coney Island Baby. Now, before anyone starts to accuse Reed of watering his sound down or selling out, consider this. When he was in the Velvet Underground, their final album, Loaded, was intended to be as commercial and radio-friendly as possible. The result was one of the greatest, most riveting, most poetic rock and roll uh, albums ever made. Um, The lesson is simple. Lou Reed doing effortless, unabashedly mainstream music is better than most artists' grand statements. Or, as Reed himself once said, quote, my week beats your year. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Uh, Coney Island Baby finds the notoriously cantankerous Reed alternately at his most romantic, his funniest, his most irreverent, his most charming, and his most open-hearted. I guess being in love can do that to someone, and Reed was very much in love at this time And he was, as he was seeing a transgender woman named Rachel Humphreys. Uh, the breezy, mid-tempo sway of Crazy Feeling opens the album with a declaration of its romantic intent. But this being Lou Reed, it's no simple love song. Um, even Blissful Romance is given a multidimensional quality and insight into both partners' minds. Charlie's Girl lopes along with a catchy riff reminiscent of some of the best tracks from Loaded. Um, She's My Best Friend is actually a Velvet Underground leftover and one of the most yearning love songs Reed ever wrote. Kicks is the only track where Reed shows his dark side, uh, a rambling, jazzy groover about a serial killer. She's My Best Friend is actually a Velvet Underground leftover and one of the most yearning love songs Reed ever wrote. Uh, Kicks is the only track where Reed shows his dark side, a rambling, jazzy groover about a serial killer whose point of view shifts back and forth between first and second person. Uh, Reed's sardonic humor comes up in the campy, 
almost porn music <laughs> of Gift, where he very tongue in cheekily brags about his masculinity. Um, Ooh, Baby is a multiple character vignette of scumbag down and out New Yorkers made all the more hilarious by a, one of the most delightfully corny sing-along choruses and Reed's entire catalog. Uh, Nobody's Business is the kind of hook-filled mid-tempo rocker that Reed could toss off in his sleep. The title track is also the final track, and its open declaration of love serves as a bookend, along with the first track, A Crazy Feeling. Uh, Reed conflates his love for his partner with his love for the school he attended as a child. And while that may be awkward in most songwriters' hands, in Reed's treatment, the starry-eyed emotion makes the connection inevitable and logical. Coney Island Baby is hands down Reed's most beautiful and affecting record, and the sincerest expression, sincerest expression of the romantic and loving soul he's rarely attributed to having. Easily one of his two or three best albums as a solo artist. Yeah, no, I I agree. I think it's a really great record. Uh, I don't ha- really have much to add other than a, a slightly funny story that I once made love to a woman to Coney Island Baby. Uh, really? A song. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's actually a, a sexier song than uh, to get your groove on than you would think. Uh, nice. Uh, this was in my pre-marriage days, everybody. So yeah, I, this was, uh, but that, that, but that was an interesting experience. Uh, so let us, let us move on. You covered that album, uh, very well. And now we come to number one on the list. Uh, drum, drum roll, please. Okay. Uh, weirdest drums ever. Uh, here we go. We're talking about Steely Dan's countdown to ecstasy, uh, from, I believe, 74, correct? 73. 73. Okay. So, Arturo and I tend to differ on a lot of things. Uh, that includes some of the entries on this list. Marginally, mind you, but enough to spark some spirited agitation. But there is one thing the two of us are absolutely in agreement with. Countdown to Ecstasy is Steely Dan's best album. Not Aja. Not Katie Lied, not Gaucho, as an increasing number of hardcore Steely Dan acolytes actually believe. No, it's this one, their second record. Back when they were still a real five-man band and not an ever-turning payroll consisting of Los Angeles' best session musicians. Back when, at their essence, Steely Dan was a guitar band and was one of the best guitar bands that ever existed. Seriously, Skunk Baxter and Denny Diaz had magic fingers. That is Skunk on the rockabilly influence solo to Bodhi Zaffa, and that is Denny on the band's first real hint of jazziness that was to come, Your Gold Teeth. Uh, the guest spots here are very few. The most notable pinch hit is Rick Derringer's slide guitar work on the amazing and angry as hell showbiz kids. Yeah. Now... Don't get me wrong, uh, Aja does deserve its props. It is unified, exquisite, and wonderful in its own studio-refracted light. But to us, the Dan accomplishes something similar here and does it way, 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 way more organically. Even the most studio-rific thing on it, the album's closer King of the World, has genuine soul that you just can't fake or capture in take number uh, 114 uh, below its belly. 
So yeah, we are in the minority here, uh, probably in the extreme minority, but you know, to hell with it. We're wrong. We're right. And everyone else is wrong. Countdown to Ecstasy, uh, Therefore and Forevermore is the most underrated album of the 70s. I don't get why this is considered, uh, this should universally be considered one of the 50 greatest rock albums ever and one of the top albums of the 1970s, but it is slept on. Uh, why? Why? Because it didn't have the hits that Can't Buy a Thrill had. It didn't have the hits that Pretzel Logic had. I mean, yeah, it didn't have the hits. So fucking what? <laughs> um, yeah. Although every now and then on classic rock radio, um, you'll hear Bodhisattva. Um, yeah. Every now and my old school, at least when I was living in Florida. Yeah. <laughs> a long time yeah, ago. yeah. You, you still get uh, <laughs> Bodhi's off in my old school. I mean, Bodhi's off is probably uh, my favorite song on it. Uh, yeah. I would say as far as best, it's probably either my old school or King of the World, uh, yeah. which is just an incredible uh, song. But no, it's just I mean, it's just I mean, just from beginning to end is just basically perfect. Uh, it's, no. uh, uh, Fagan and Becker, uh, at, at their, uh, their most, uh, focused and, uh, gnarly. And, uh, this is before they decided that they were going to try to make the greatest album ever made every time out. And at this point yeah. they were still just rocking balls. And I will end this. I've done it three times already. Fuck it. I'm going to do it for a fourth time. I'm going to quote Robert Criscow again. Go figure. <laughs> in his 1973 uh, review. Very short. They're all short reviews. Um, with the replacement of lead singer David Palmer, who fit in like a cheerleader at a crap game, <laughs> by, by composer, pianist, conversationalist Donald Fagan, who looks like he just got dressed to go out for the paper, they achieve a deceptively agreeable studio slickness. Perfect licks that crackle and buzz when you listen hard. Grassroots harmonies applied to words that are usually twisted. Not only does Bodhisattva come on like a jazzed up rock around the clock, it shines like China and sparkles like Japan. But somehow, I don't think Fagan really intends to hold hands with an enlightened one, not even out of base curiosity. And now, ladies and gentlemen, fellow curmudgeonly listeners, we go into the vault. And into the vault, Chris and I... Each episode, pick two albums from the past, whether it's the distant past or the recent past, where albums that we think are deserving of attention and revisionism. Of course, our episode is about the most underrated albums of the 1970s. So, of course, Chris and I each picked an album that we both think, uh, albums that we both think are very, very underrated um, not among the great, not among the most underrated albums of the 1970s, but still worthy of uh, some revisionist listening due to either them being really great or them just being really fucking weird. Uh, the latter is what I'm going with. <laughs> um, from the deepest, darkest, most obscure depths of the vault, I present to you, the curmudgeonly listeners, and to you, Chris. British folk singer Mark Fry's beautiful yet oddly haunting 1972 acid folk classic, Dreaming with Alice. Now, imagine, if you will, a celestial wonderland patterned after, well, Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, where mandolin men walk narrow streets 
with Norman soldiers from ye old England, benevolently giving flowers to Christopher Columbus while playing their lutes, their flutes, and their sitars, all while wearing silken lace. Meanwhile, there is an unsettling unease in this panacea as witches gaze into your window, urging you to march on down an uncertain path to a home you never knew. Or maybe Mark Fry was just a guy who smoked a lot of pot and listened to way too much Donovan. Uh, In any case, my little soliloquy there referenced the names of all the songs on this painfully pretty delight of an album. A more cynical person would say Fry's brand of hippy-dippy acoustic reverie was out of fashion by 1972, and while that may be correct, being out of step with the times never hurt Creed doing grunge in the Electronica year of 1997. True enough. And if if that shitty band could be huge, then Mark Fry deserves not just a pass for being a step out of the times or out of step with the times, but an appropriately revisionist listen as well. Lute and flute is so fucking corny that you have to admire Fry's courage to even write such a song. Uh, The Witch is probably the standout track on the album with this genuinely disturbing imagery of a witch beckoning you at your window to come on home with its driving bongos and sitar arrangement. It's akin to Nick Drake on a bad acid trip. Uh, Mandolin Man is an eight minute folk rock jam with shifting time signatures, odd breaks and some downright groovy acoustic guitar wizardry and a wah-wah pedal electric freakiness. Truly an out there diamond in a very deep rough. (laughs) Mark Fry's Dreaming with Alice is worthy of anyone interested in spaced out, slightly psychedelic, richly textured, bizarro folk music. Yeah, uh, the albums like this annoy me. I, uh, <laughs> I mean, yes, I mean, you kind of. I've known of this album for a while, but never really dove into it until this week. Uh, for what it's worth, uh, pressings of this album are so rare; uh, they sell for five thousand plus pounds in England at auction. Uh, yeah, they're so they're hard to come by. Uh, it is on Spotify, uh, and it is all over YouTube. So hey, there you go. Uh, but yeah, I mean. I'd call this album pretentious, but Mark Fry is a child of privilege that uh, spent a few years uh, traveling around Europe and uh, made his living as a painter. Uh, and I'm not even sure it was a living; it, but at least it was a it was a passion. But he's most yeah. he's most known as a as a painter. And uh, with this record, which he recorded, uh, I think in the course of like three days, it's basically a bedroom recording in uh, Italy. Yeah, yeah. I mean. When you break up your title song into nine 37 second chunks uh, throughout the record, uh, yeah, I mean, once or twice is great, but after the eighth one, that gets kind of annoying. Um, The Witch is good, although, like you said, uh, he definitely liked his Donovan. Oh, and uh, (laughs) speaking of reverence, uh, I like the song Loot and Flute better in its original version, otherwise known as Uncle John's Band by the Grateful Dead. Uh, I also liked uh, Down Narrow Streets in its original version as Astro Weeks by Van Morrison. Uh, but uh, being that as made, there actually is some pretty stuff on here. Uh, like Down Narrow Streets is very pretty. Uh, Song for Wild, The Norman Soldier, uh, uh, those types of things. So like I said, can't call it pretentious because the guy really was an aristocrat. 
Um, and, you know, granted, I mean, maybe there's some connection spiritually, at least with Daniel Johnson, you know, the, the weird guy making, you know, making kind of lo-fi hissy recordings. Uh, but yeah, thank you. Thank you for taking this out of the vault. Uh, you're, you, <laughs> you, you do the public service. Uh, our, uh, our roles with the vault usually are, you do the ones that nobody's, most people haven't heard of. I do the ones that people have forgotten. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that seems to be our uh, division of labor. So good stuff. Uh, yeah, it definitely worth checking out. Um, just do yourself a favor. I mean, listen to the first two uh, version, versions or verses of Dreaming with Alice and then skip the rest because, yeah, you'll you'll quickly get, uh, you know, it'll it'll agitate you. Well, the, the, the very last track's a kick-ass jam. I like that one. That, that's a yeah. good one. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And, and Mandolin Man is good, too. Like I said, there's it's not a bad record. It, it, it isn't a bad record. But again, it's... It is a little, it's too late to be, uh, in the, the heart of psychedelia and, uh, the dead obviously was gotta be an influence, right? I mean, sure. Yeah. Well, but then again, the dead was an influence on everybody in 1972. Let's face it. They, they were kind of, they were kind of in the uh, DNA. So, okay. Mark Fry, uh, big ups. Uh, you're relevant here in 2022. Uh, now, as I said, I am the one that covers the forgotten stuff. And so uh, on the underrated theme, I am going to take out of the vault an album that uh, is very, very, very fun and uh, deserves your respect. Uh, the Isley Brothers, The Heat Is On. Uh, may I present to you the 1975 Black Music Jamboree. If yeah. it was cool in 1975, Ron Isley and his bros captured it uh, on the magnificent, the heat is on, uh, not the Glenn Fry song, uh, just to be clear. Uh, now, hell, uh, the first and best song on the thing, fight the power parts one and two works as soul funk disco bedroom, freaky deaky groove music, pre chic black rock and roll and late period Motown as if a Jackson five single went the way of Frankenstein's monster. I implore you to listen to this song as soon as possible, maybe even right after we finish this episode. Now, less hyperbolically, uh, here's the Isley Brothers story. Uh, the band consists of five brothers and one brother-in-law from Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, it started off as three of them, then it grew to six over time, and then from there whittled down to uh, two as uh, drug addictions and death uh, uh, hit some of the brothers. Uh now, they became famous and forever etched into popular music consciousness in the 1960s uh, with genuinely a uh, great version of Twist and Shout. And uh, they uh, did This Old Heart of Mine, which is an actual Motown release, uh, released on Motown. And then most famously, It's Your Thing, which is probably their biggest hit. Now, those initial songs uh, gave this hit-making machine the license to experiment mightily and experimentally, and they mightily, they did all through the 1970s. Uh, the most famous of their records from that decade is Three Plus Three, which includes the oft-licensed but never duplicated breezy little rocker That Lady. Uh, yes, you've heard it uh, over and over and over and over again, and probably like every other movie. Uh, but uh, The Heat Is On is my personal favorite of these records. Uh, I already gave the long version. Here's the short version. Damn, this thing is fun. Uh, here is a famous, highly regarded band that still doesn't really get its proper due. I mean, 
They were contemporaries of Earth, Wind, and Fire, Curtis Mayfield, uh, P-Funk, and other top-selling artists. It sucks to finish in the middle of that great of a pack. Uh, even so, uh, Ron and Ernie Isley especially moved on pretty well from that, the band's heyday there. Uh, Ron scored a duet hit in the 1980s with Rod Stewart, which I believe uh, was a cover of uh, This Old Heart of Mine. Uh, and he found his way into several hip-hop videos as this sort of uh, godfather figure in like pimp clothing. Uh, hmm. Kind of strange. Uh, now, uh, he also, in retrospect, maybe... Uh, I don't know if he wants to uh, uh, talk this up as much. He hitched his, uh, his wagon to R. Kelly and, uh, and R. Kelly helped him cash in on uh, that Godfather persona and produced a big hit for Ron and Ernie as the Isles brothers, uh, which by at this point, they are the only two active members of the Isles brothers. And this is in 2001 a song called contagious, a huge hit and, you know, classic R. Kelly template, uh, sexy R&B. Now, R. Kelly again worked his magic with the brothers on 2003's Body Kiss, which amazingly hit number one on the Billboard 200 album chart and also won a Grammy in 2004 for Best R&B Album. The Isleys were inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1992 and last released an album in 2017 as they were approaching their 80s. Not bad. So check out the Isley brothers and start with The Heat Is On. Uh, it'll be a sexy time swing party for one or hey, why not two? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really is. Uh, fight the power. Uh, one of my favorite riffs of all time. Uh, just, uh, just kind of this. That that's the Isley Brothers doing bona fide funk. Uh, great yeah. stuff. Yeah, this is this is a double album in its original format yeah. on LP, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. um, I love disc, uh, disc one or album one. It's got all the funk stuff on it, great stuff from top to bottom. Um, disc two has got all this, you know, the the smooth, uh, yeah. the smooth mellow R and B stuff. It's it's a bit anticlimactic after like the funk fireworks of the <laughs> of, yeah. of of disc one. Um, but, but, but it is, you know, overall it is a really strong album. I wish, I wish they would have done more funk. I wish yeah. they would have, uh, uh, like peppered it a little more on disc two, just in my, you know, personal, uh, personal opinion. Um, the, the, on disc two or, or the, the, the second album for the love of you parts one and two, yep. it's a really, really great track, but I find sensuality and make me say it again, girl, kind of redundant. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, no. Yeah. And it is. And, and, but that's, that's closer to what the Isla brothers were most known for. It, no. it, it was just kind of orthodox pop hits, but then those sort of slow, sexy jams, uh, right. which is why I bet back in 75, if you were, uh, if you were a, a, a fan of black music of, of R and B, uh, it must've shocked the shit out of everybody to hear a funk track, uh, from the <laughs> Isley brothers after yeah. doing so many of that, those sort of, orthodox r&b songs for so long and right. not only did they do a funk track they did one of the best funk tracks ever yeah <laughs> uh you know i yeah. used to own the uh, the four disc uh funk box that rhino released 20 something years ago and uh that was featured most prominent uh more very prominently uh, on uh, that set so uh love this record love the isley brothers uh ron isley uh and a grossly under appreciated uh towering uh, talent. Uh, yeah. That, you know, I mean, he has gotten his due, but not enough of it. Right. Absolutely. Sure. So, uh, <laughs> Art, what's coming up next? Oh, and remember, uh, the curmudgeon rock reports, curmudgeonly community on Facebook invite only, 
you can find us there. And uh, we're going to implore current members to invite all their friends. We want a bigger party. And hit us up at curmudgeonrock.gmail.com and tell us how you really feel. Now, Arturo, what are we doing? Next. Yeah, next, um, we're going to do another legacy episode. We talked about the 1970s and all the underrated albums, uh, as I alluded to in my promo. Um, Our next episode will be focused on the legacy of a particular band, very heavily influenced by the rock or the heavy rock of the 1970s. And this is the pioneering Seattle grunge band Soundgarden. Um, And we're doing Soundgarden, a legacy And this will be kind of a precursor to the mammoth monster nine-part series that we have planned. Um, And we'll talk about it a little bit more in the next episode. But let it be known that Soundgarden and the the sound that they pioneered, uh, or they're one of the bands who pioneered the sound that defined a a, a subgenre, that defined a city, that defined a decade. I'll just leave it at that. And we're going to talk about that. So here we are at the end of another episode of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. And as we just said, uh, next episode in two weeks, we will be focusing on Soundgarden. Here's a bit of homework for you. Uh, Definitely check out uh, the band's early catalog uh, before Bad Motorfinger dropped in September of 1991. Uh, If you are familiar with it, you will love it again. If you are not, it will be an excellent education. Uh, That said, you can always reach us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com and definitely check out our Facebook group, the uh, Curmudgeon Rock Reports Curmudgeonly Community. Uh, You will definitely dig it. Uh, Take care, and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye-bye.